Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Focus Interviews with Angelica Ung by Spectacles. Today, we're joined by the incredible Angelica Ong, who you may know from Twitter as the Manic Nuclear Scheme Girl. In the past, she's passionately covered nuclear and other energy policy as an activist and reporter for the Taipei Times. She also used to have a lively blog called Typology about all things Taiwan, but now she runs her own trade publication about Taiwanese offshore wind development. She's contributed a fabulous piece to Spectacles about the history of nuclear energy development in Taiwan, as well as the challenges it faces there and in democracies in general. Today, we're going to be talking about that and more. Angelica, thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course. I understand there was a big conference in Taiwan for wind energy a few days ago. Are you exhausted coming off that? How are you doing? <laughs> Well, I, I, I kind of feel like Cinderella coming home from the ball because um, <laughs> in Taipei, I don't get recognized by absolute strangers. Um, they uh-huh. don't squeal and ask for my card. Um, but uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but I am a micro-celebrity in the Taiwanese <laughs> offshore wind industry. But I just want to um, add that I am still very much... Even though it's slowed down, I am still very much um, updating uh, my blog on Taiwan, all things oh, okay, Taiwan, apology. And in fact, um, hopefully, I think we discussed this piece might also be on typology so that we can do like a, a co-promotion deal thing. Yeah, that would be lovely. I mean, we both, Harry and I both love typology. So that, that would Thank be... You. Thank that's, you. That's good to hear. I didn't know that you were still planning on writing for it. And I, I knew that we were going to uh, probably do our piece on it, yeah. but... That's great to hear. Um, it's just all a matter of bandwidth. Um, and right. right now I'm a little bit low on that. But the, that, I think that's a great thing about having your own publication. It's you get to control it. And if you need to take a break, you can. But uh, you control the platform. So it's right. always there for you. That's well, very true. We're especially thankful that uh, low on bandwidth as you are, that you took the time to, to talk to us and write with us. Hey, but- if it's nuclear, I've always got the time. <laughs> On that note, um, <laughs> I just don't want to jump in here. Uh, I wanted to start with a question that I think has been sort of decisively answered by the quote-unquote science, but for reasons you gesture at in your piece, maybe well-meaning liberals and progressives aren't necessarily hip to, um, and that's the safety of nuclear energy, right? There's a ton of extant concern about radioactive waste and how it can harm us, mostly as a result of um, the disasters at Chernobyl and Fukushima, um, which I understand have had a particularly strong impact on Taiwan, being an island nation like Japan, vulnerable to similar such um, disasters. Mm -hmm. Um, But to Mm. Give the rundown here. Why is nuclear safe and who needs to hear that message and why do they need to hear it? Well, uh, when I think about this topic, I always try to think to myself, if I can go back in time by a few years when I was actually anti-nuclear myself, mm-hmm. what can I do to convince myself that mm-hmm. nuclear power is actually safe? Because for me, for my journey, it wasn't until I started reporting on energy and that I got exposed to a lot of information. Um, for instance, I didn't know that the, the amount of high-level waste that a person produces over their lifetime of consuming electricity can fit in the uh, travel coffee mug I have sitting right in front of me. Mm-hmm. I also had no idea that once that waste is um, safely packed into dry storage um, in those big concrete casts, that they're virtually indestructible 
and in Fukushima, well, well, there was terrible danger with the disaster there. Um, the dry storage container um, were, in fact, completely untouched and completely safe. Mm. Oh, I didn't know um, there's just never been a case of nuclear waste that's been, um, once it has been packed away in dry storage, of causing anybody any harm at all. Um, and I just think I didn't know that. I didn't know the facts. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot to it. And but but when we get down to it, the problem is um, it's just so difficult to understand and so technical mm. um, that people the fear becomes much much more salient. Uh, it's kind of like uh, how people you you hear about couples who won't be on the same flight in case something terrible happens, but yeah. uh, they would drive in the same car on the way to the <laughs> airport where they're statistically more yeah. likely to end up in an accident. Right. Um, so um, I think it's the same sort of thing when you look at the statistics. Even with those three terrible disasters, actually, I guess nobody died at Fukushima. I think that would be where I would start um, if I yeah. were to go back in time and try and convince myself that nuclear energy is actually safe. Uh, I would ask myself, how many people died from radiation in the Fukushima disaster? And the answer is, depending how you count it, um, it's zero or one. Certainly mm. zero um, in wow. the immediate aftermath of the disaster. And it wasn't until many, many years later, uh, one, uh, one personnel who was exposed died of thyroid cancer. But that's a statistical number. He got the compensation, but none of us can say for sure what would have happened right. absent of the disaster. Right. right. And I think that that, that um, plane crash, uh, car crash example is good as well, right? Because when a plane crashes, that's a huge sort of focusing event, right? Everyone pays attention. It's in the news. Absolutely. But people die of car crashes all the time. Thousands um, of people. And, they're, and so cars Every are, day. yeah, statistically less safe than planes. But even even me, right? I mean, it hits us all. It's, it's, not, it's, not, a, it's not a rational thing. It's an id thing. If I get on a plane... I'm a little worried about the plane crashing, but I get behind the wheel of, <laughs> of course, my car every a day. Can right? in the sky just feels highly, highly unnatural. Right. Uh, same with nuclear energy. I think in a way it's it's a victim of its own success because mm. it's so powerful. It seems like a magic. Yeah. Um, people don't understand it. And unfortunately, as humans, we do have this innate drive to fear what it is we can't really understand. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so for me, I, I think it's, um, and another thing that we humans tend to do is just to peg something um, to by association. So unfortunately, uh, with nuclear energy, which is completely different, we do have this um, mental image of the mushroom cloud of right. nuclear bombs. Well, and I forgot who it was that first said it, it doesn't make any sense to associate nuclear energy with a nuclear bomb any more than it makes it makes sense to associate electricity with an electric chair. Right. Uh, nevertheless, that point. association is there. And I, I think we, we nuclear, uh, another thing is um, pro-nuclear people quite often, um, they tend to be um, very engineering minded, which is great, but doesn't always make them the best communicators. Right. Mm. And I think that there, there's a lot of uh, possible games that can be done there just by creating more positive associations in people's minds. So for instance, this association of nuclear energy with nuclear medicine, we depend on 
highly, highly mm. controlled, specialized, and efficacious application of nuclear all the time in medicine, the proton yeah. knife to help us operate different right. medical isotopes for imaging. We have to have that completely under control, and it it is of benefit to mankind. Right, right, right. And I mean, I think you highlight one reason that the fact that there's lots of engineers in this space that leads to poor communication um, as, as one of the obstacles to communicating the facts to people and those facts really having an impact. I think Harry and I, uh, particularly Harry, we've written about that particular challenge for democracy, turning facts into meaningful and persuasive rhetoric is a real challenge in democracy. And for another Absolutely. reason, because sometimes uh, one side of the debate gets co-opted by a party, and then it's no longer about facts. It's about sort of a partisan divide, and you really highlight that in Taiwan with the, yeah. uh, you, as your friends say, we just can't let the KMT have this one. Um, yeah, it, yeah. In part, that was yeah. Yeah, that's just too bad. It was really sad. I remember you tweeted about that. I think uh, a while ago. I remember I saw when that happened. <laughs> I was right. like, oh god, I that did. is really sad. Um, but I know, in part, it hit me hard. Yeah, in part, people uh, are opposed, and I'm interested about opposition to the KMT because you say in part people are opposed to the KMT, especially young people. Uh, because they appear to be aligned with the Chinese Communist Party in some way. Uh, you mentioned some yes. photo ops and, and mm -hmm. some bad-looking surveys and some stuff about the One China policy. Uh, how did this come to pass? I mean, you also seem to express some incredulity in your piece that the party yeah. of Chiang Kai-shek, the last president of China who set up shop in Taiwan to resist the Chinese Communist Party, that, that this guy's party, of all things, would align with the CCP. you have any idea what happened there? It does seem kind of incredible, doesn't it? And uh, it, it, I guess if I were to try and um, try and think about how this happened, it's just a matter of trying to be relevant in a world where they become increasingly irrelevant. Mm. You have to remember, this is a party that staked its existential claim on existing, like their, their reason to be is to um, find their footing in Taiwan again. Mm. and retake China from Taiwan. Um, for, for the longest time, for the longest time, we actually had a whole shadow, shadow government for different provinces in, in China. Did you know that? It was I did not absolutely know that. Wow. absurd. For decades after um, Chiang Kai-shek was beaten back and driven to Taiwan, we still had representatives for all the different uh, provinces and localities uh, in in China. That wow. <laughs> you know, um, it 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 was a um, facade that wasn't obviously fooling anybody. Um, but I think when you withdraw um, the fundamental reason to exist for any entity like that. Uh, it is thrown into chaos and disarray. Yeah. And what could have happened, what would have been really good is if they took um, a long, good, hard look at themselves and their history and, um, you know, came to a reckoning and started again um, with the acceptance that they are a Taiwanese party now, mm, no matter yeah. what their roots, you know, they're no longer the Republic of China. They haven't 
been in China for a long time. Uh, but in but in in this case, they weren't able to make that leap. They continue to think of themselves as having this, um, you know, being this China-based party, mm, and mm-hmm. somehow um, along the way, um, they decided that the way that the enemy, the enemy um, was the people in Taiwan who um, didn't want that, and that threw them into allyship with the CP- mm. CCP. That's mm. the best explanation I can come up with. Right. I mean, there's an interesting thing there, which I was thinking about also with with the with nuclear policy. You can sort of look at it in in in, in that respect as well. That po- sometimes political parties will like seek out, right? They'll look for a constituency um, and they'll adopt positions based on that. It's not necessarily the causal flow is like it's not like the constituency wants this, so the party will will adopt it because they already support it. Sometimes the party goes out in 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 search of a constituency and it tries to find it and maneuver around that um, to uh, achieve some kind of um, electoral advantage but um there's another thing in your piece that I, I wanted to i wanted to hit on you point out that one of the um quote-unquote innovative technologies that china is using is actually not so innovative you talk about um pebble bed reactor yes. tech um, which was actually mm-hmm. formulated in the u.s in the 1970s but mm-hmm. further progress yeah. was stopped by uh, the carter administration over um i think you point to concerns over non-proliferation and mm-hmm. it's interesting that this was figured out decades ago, but when China set out to replicate it, and I think this is, I'm not quite sure about what pebble bed reactor technology is, but it's a small scale reactor. Uh, this this small scale reactor took them 20 years to sort out and get running. And to me, this suggests, right, the extent to which technological innovation and the pace of it is heavily influenced right, by by institutions, both private and public, so companies and, and also, you know, governments. Um, at the same time, I think you also have people saying that the clock might be ticking for nuclear to make a difference because all these countries have, um, you know, sort of foregone nuclear. They've, they've gotten rid of it. And so there's less time for them for them to make a difference using nuclear in the escalating climate crisis, even that, it, you know, it might even be too late for nuclear. Um, in fairness, right, if things are going to take long to get going if it's going to take 20 years as it did in china um what are the changes that need to happen for institutions to better support and speed up innovation to make um nuclear uh, a timely answer to the to the ecological crisis well first of all i think that um it's kind of nonsense to say it's too late for nuclear to make a difference Mm. because um we don't actually have an alternate answer Right. Uh, with renewables, and I work in renewables. I'm not against renewables at all, but um, they they tend to be intermittent, mm. and um, battery solutions are nosebleedingly expensive, eye-wateringly expensive. And it's not even certain that if we wanted to invest all this money in it, that it's going to scale. A lot of um, the technology that we're counting on to fight climate change right now. Um, it's it's not like nuclear where we know it works, but we we kind of forgotten how to do it. It's mm. literally like, well, if we extrapolate this graph and things keep going that way, then if one day, blah blah blah, you know, right. dot dot dot. And to me, um, is it ideal that because of this institutional setback, we are maybe you know uh, half a century behind where we should be in terms of nuclear technology? Um, course i'm not happy about that um but uh you know the to me that's not the same as saying it, it's too late to make a difference because if you look at the alternatives um they're not there yet either right 
Meanwhile, I think there is reason to hope.、Um, if you look at, if you look at even Taiwan, you look at France in the set. In, in in response to an energy crisis,、mm-hmm. look how these institutions are able to move very quickly. Right in France with the Mesmer plant, where they built I think fifty something、um, something reactors in a sprint of、uh, I forgot maybe twenty years. Wow! Even look at Taiwan. You have to remember Taiwan in the Taiwan in the seventies and eighties. This is not the Taiwan of TSMC. This is a Taiwan where. We're just starting to figure out how to make baseballs, and sneaker making technology is state of the art、um, for us <laughs> for our manufacturing at that time, right? So we're not talking about a super advanced um, technological um, powerhouse here, but you know we we sent some smart people, we sent some good people over to the states, and we came back with the technology, and we had a deadline. And we built it. This is so sad,、yeah. guys. The first nuclear plant in Taiwan, on time, on budget.、Um, second and third、um, had a bigger budget, but they were still basically on time and on budget. And if you look at what went wrong with the fourth nuclear plant, I would say the main deficiency there is not that you know we've forgotten how to do it, but、uh, it it. It's really because of all the other issues we were talking about.、Right. There's nimbyism and fear of nuclear, and the un- unfortunate association of nuclear energy with the despotic、um, Chiang regime. Right. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, you had all this、uh, institutional red tape in the way of people who、um, yeah. knew how to do the job. And so me, so for me. Of course,、um, it's absolutely the case that we made our job harder.、Um, but the main obstacle to nuclear energy coming in to fight climate change, to be a tool in our toolbox again to fight climate change, the main obstacle is not that we don't have the technology anymore. The main obstacle is that we have too much regulatory ratcheting. It seems、mm. like、uh, there can only be more red tape, never less. Yeah, and that is a, the real problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Harry and I have talked about that also a number of times at Spectacles. We wrote a piece about that recently. What was it?、Um, medical lobbying. Medical lobbying. Yeah, that. The U.S. And, and there were some、mm-hmm. others about、um, how we're in a moment where what's really demanded is, particularly with regard to the climate and our our current energy policy, which is progressively. Polluting the world and and causing all kinds、yes. of problems in the long term.、Mm-hmm. What we need basically is any kind of action. We need people to、yes. try things. We need action. And essentially, we can't do worse than we've got right now. But we have all these regulations that are afraid of doing anything new because anything new might be bad. When our current、Absolutely. scheme is already、uh, almost. Incomprehensibly bad.、Terrible. You know, you couldn't、it's、do worse、terrible. than it. Honestly, <laughs> right?、Um, we are we are so afraid of the consequences of our, our actions. We are completely blind to the consequences of our inaction. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way of putting it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I I think、um, just shifting gears a little bit, I, and I think this will probably be、uh, about the last. Question: We have maybe we'll talk about some other things afterwards. Who knows? But、um, one thing that I really liked about your piece, as 
someone who's not very familiar with uh, Taiwanese affairs is that it gives with your breakdown of the DPP and Tsai Ing-wen and Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT, it gives a little bit of a Taiwanese politics and political history 101, uh, even as it does focus pretty narrowly on, let's let's talk about nuclear energy specifically. Uh, That I, I really enjoyed because it strikes me as being particularly important because most Americans, even those who are particularly politically aware, I, I think I'm fairly politically aware, right? Um, seem to see Taiwan uh, less as a country with its own rich history and internal domestic politics, but more as a kind of proxy for anti-China sentiments, which may be well-placed, mm-hmm. but in some ways seems to reduce Taiwan in their minds to something less than it actually is. And my sense is that Something like this could actually be quite detrimental to prudent geopolitical strategies and the safety of democracy if democratic citizens, you know, don't understand or can't relate to our partners like Taiwan in the fullest sense or don't even try to. Uh, I'm thinking as a sort of example of how public perception of a country can matter a lot in these kinds of geopolitical situations. You can see it right now, I think, happening in Ukraine. It seems to have been very helpful for them that their president has sort of cultivated um, an international personal reputation that a lot of people have been able to rally around. So that's just an example. Setting that aside, I'm curious if you can speak at all uh, just sort of to your personal perspective about how others outside the country may perceive Taiwan and how that may matter either now or in the future? Well, um, frankly, I think Taiwan has come such a long way in its um, in its journey to be seen internationally. And mm. so much of that credit goes to our president, um, Tsai Ing-wen. And you guys know from my piece, I am critical of her energy policy. Mm-hmm. But in terms of raising our awareness of our um, our situation and also being a good neighbor internationally and uh, connecting with other countries in this um, lively, spirited, and principled way, Taiwan has done a really good job. And um, it's actually, it's a very virtuous cycle where um, People in Taiwan um, see that we are engaging with the international community and they see us. Um, and it actually causes us to take more pride in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, I think so far that's been really good and it's been really inspiring. I think several years ago, I couldn't imagine uh, what's happening, um, let's say, with the Baltic states connecting with Taiwan. Yeah. And um, there is real sense, you know, they're so far away. It's very little significant trade ties between us. It's really a tie that's based on values. Mm-hmm. And I think they saw us and recognized that we're on the same side of this vastly larger existential fight. Mm-hmm. And we saw them recognize the same. And um, this bond that's been created um, is so unlikely. But um, as we see now with Ukraine, international perception can absolutely make or break a smaller country's um, fight Mm -hmm. to continue to exist the way they want to exist, to continue to be free. Now, of course, I do cringe a little sometimes when international friends, well-meaning international friends, um, maybe uh, do collapse the Taiwan 
issue into just, you know, just being anti-China or Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, they're more sophisticated. They might know about TSMC as well or (laughs) um, some sort of, (laughs) yeah, boba story or whatever. I actually think that's that's very reasonable. And if you um, look at Taiwan as well, the way we see the rest of the world, it can be very much based on um, the lens of our subjectivity, right? You know, what is what are all these countries in relation to us? Um, to me, um, that's natural. We we don't have the time to uh, exquisitely understand every single country. Um, but at the same time, it's more important than ever to uh, have a good sense, a global sense of how all these countries connect together in an alliance. Um, and especially uh, the way the world is right now, it's more important than ever that we truly see each other, mm-hmm. truly, truly see each other as sovereign, as sovereign entities. And, um, you know, Big countries, small countries, uh, countries of different. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, um, from if you take a geopolitical realist point of view, um, Ukraine doesn't have that much to do with Taiwan, right? And you can argue that the situations are actually very different from a geopolitical point of view. Right. Taiwan is a a key part of the U.S. strategy that's very focused on Asia. Mm-hmm. While Europe has become less and less important um, in the American um, geopolitical um, strategy, uh, right. this, this and there's a sense that they're actually very. If you take the realist lens, they're very, very different countries. But Taiwan has pointed out, even while noting that difference, that we are absolutely a hundred percent in support of Ukraine because we also recognize that. Beyond the realist lens, there is the um, moral lens. And in terms of um, the moral lens, then Taiwan and the Ukraine are very similar. Yeah, and I I think that beyond sort of, we talk about geopolitics and, um, you know, the, the fact that it is critical that we see each other as sovereign for all kinds of reasons, including them just moral reasons. But uh, I think even looking and sort of tying back to our, our core topic, nuclear energy, not just sort of this obligation that we have to each other, but also if we can see each other better and pay more attention to each other, I think there's also so many opportunities to learn that can help us too. Right. Um, I think you talk yeah. about France and their nuclear program is a great example of how, Absolutely. you know, the more understanding we are that there are other places that do things differently. And not only is that okay and they should be allowed to, but we can learn from them all right. the time. And so I think that that's something that's really important for a lot of reasons right now. Absolutely. I, I think there's, because I am in this um, really privileged uh, position of, um, in, I'm Taiwanese American, and I've lived in both those countries. I've seen their democracy from the inside and from the outside. I can tell you that um, a lot of the things that we take for granted as the way things are just is not. And mm-hmm. <laughs> To me, it's really, really fascinating because in Taiwan, instead of having a, a strong left-right axis like we have in the United States, 
it's a blue-green axis with the blue going down on one side and the green um, DPP on the other side. It's a axis, it's a political axis that is completely oriented based on um, your position towards China. And mm -hmm. then right. all the other different policies, including nuclear energy, have to be awkwardly uh, shoehorned into that spectrum in a way that isn't natural and which stifles yeah. good debate. And it's a problem in Taiwan. And I think in addition to learning from um, the positive attributes of other democracy and other countries, we can also see the flaws. And I think uh, for US, for me as the American, when I put my American hat on, I think what issues are becoming distorted in our democracy in the United States because we are shoehorning it onto the Republican Democrat axis. Mm, and we yeah. can't really see it for what it is because we're too busy defending our side from attack. Right. No, that's true. I mean, I think you see that um, you brought that out really nicely in your piece with um, the way that denuclearization is tied so explicitly to democracy, right? And, 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 and you know, and, and um, Taiwanese independence. Um, and that's, it, it feels somewhat irrational, right? If you also have on the one hand to have like, um, we're, you know, for um, reducing carbon emissions, but at the same time, we're anti-nuclear, right? You get these sort of weird patchwork things because policy parties don't always develop their policies rationally. But I think you're also right that in a time of really heightened polarization, um, those like those very sharp and strange divisions can be um, made a lot worse. Um, and I think that that is that's definitely something to keep in mind. I actually do regret that about my pro-nuclear effort is that I, w I do regret that I was so um, blithe about dismissing the past. I was like, well, you know, all this stuff happened a long time ago. And this yeah. guy who goes on a hunger strike and we, he doesn't eat for a few days and we have to shut off a, a whole big, beautiful plant right. that can provide so much low carbon energy. But when I dug into his history, I was absolutely shocked by the incredibly harrowing journey that this man yeah. um, went through, right? He, he participated in one of the inciting incidents of uh, Taiwanese democracy, right. the Kaohsiung incident, and he was thrown in jail. And, you know, for all he knew, he could have been um, executed. And in fact, his, his family, most of his family, his mom and two daughters were murdered in this right. uh, unsolved case that in, in Taiwan is widely assumed to have been done um, in retribution for his pro democracy pro democracy activities. Yeah. Um, so and he he rose to um, become a politician. And um, when you look at his story, then it's it's no wonder not just that um, he personally hated nuclear power and associate hated everything associated with right. the um, Kuomintang but also that his actions carried incredible moral weight. This is not to say that we, nuclear power is somehow condemned in Taiwan, mm. but um, as activists, that is something that we absolutely have to address and to, to try and um, weigh that away as, oh, just stuff that happened a long time ago, um, that isn't it. And I wish um, if I could go back in my activism, that is one thing that I would have changed.
Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's important because it's like, on the one hand, we want, you know, the facts to, to triumph in these situations as good liberals, I think, generally do and reason and rationality and say, okay, this is what makes sense. These things fit mm-hmm. into these neat boxes. Yes. Um, but of course, that's not how humans behave. Um, and nope. so it, it right. requires sympathy and, and, and persuasion and honest and open and even the emotional and raw debate well, to sort of reach those conclusions. Well, there's a really poetic, I think, almost note uh, here that we're talking about nuclear energy and we're talking also about, you know, uh, all kinds of, um, being, uh, about the ineffectiveness of facts in the face of rhetoric and emotion. And it's interesting because if you think about it, I mean, our harnessing of the atom, both in the nuclear bomb and nuclear medicine and in nuclear energy is one of the highest peaks of human logical scientific achievement. Right. I mean, it is the triumph of human logic embodied. Mm. And yet we approach it with such an absence of logic. And that's something that if you're really into nuclear and you highlight this with the engineers, if you're really into nuclear and you appreciate that and you have that kind of respect and reverence for the achievements of human logic and, and intellect and things like this, it's hard to keep in mind just how equally important is our predisposition to emotion right. rather than intellect. So yeah. I think that's a sort of really interesting contrast that we see at hand in this issue, almost poetically. Yeah. Yeah, it is it's so ironic, isn't it? And it brings me to another quote that I really like, uh, which is, we humans still have the emotional wiring of, of cavemen. We really haven't progressed right. much beyond our uh, hunter-gatherer days. We have the institutions that are medieval. Mm. And then we have the technology of gods. <laughs> really, this is <laughs> where we're at. And this is, a lot of our dysfunction come from that. Yeah. And uh, I, I believe that if you can correctly diagnose the problem, then you can also find your way to a solution. Yeah. So I believe that if we humans do manage to solve the problem of climate change and continue to survive and thrive into well into the future, it's not going to be because we found some miraculous piece of technology. It's because we... Um, went back and examined our institutions, um, including democracy, h- how to make that better, and even more deeply um, look within ourselves and uh, um, how do, do we deal with our emotions? How do we, do, have we learned how to deal with our negative emotions? Have we learned to observe them? Mm. And have we learned to move beyond um, acting in a reactive way and instead in a way that furthers our long-term self-interest? Right. Yeah. Well, I feel like you've diagnosed the problem really well. It runs all the way from how we, you know, implement our policies to these sort of deeper human longings and desires and feelings, um, which leaves leaves a lot to chew on. Um, and I think that all that all also comes out very strongly in your piece. So for anyone who's listening who hasn't read the piece, please do. It's well well worth your time. I really enjoyed editing it. Thank you so much for writing for us. I think we're about ready to wrap up. Yeah. It was really a pleasure to to not just to talk with you, but to work with you. And it's, it's been a lot of fun and um, the piece we're super, we're super excited about. We're super happy about it. Awesome. And and vice versa. Also, it's it's very rare that um, I get, uh, first of all, such a strong um, pitch from editors with a vision, not just like, Oh, you know, this is hot right now. We have to get something (laughs) out on this. Like, Oh yeah, this is this is this is a topic you're interested in, we're interested in, and fits with our 
um, publications um, right. uh, goals and themes. And so it's been a pleasure to work in that way. And I hope look forward already to our next collaboration. Yeah, me too. Definitely. Thank you very much, Angelica. Thanks, guys. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website, also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter, if you haven't already, to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.